it's a pleasure to be here. This is a unique forum for me to be here with so many accomplished individuals, uh, both those of us like myself, well along, uh, and those who are uh, already accomplished at a young age. Uh, I'll, I'll share with you a few thoughts uh, about my career, but I'd, I'd actually like to segue into some ideas that I wanted to share with this, with this audience. Uh, and I'll see if I can make that segue smoothly. I've always had a passion for uh, essentially the magic of taking materials and if you put them in just the right order and do things in just the right sequence, something happens that's greater than what you put into it. And in fact, I was interested in magic as a child, but discovered technology and ultimately the computer as a more powerful and more lasting form of magic because when you reveal the methods, the magic doesn't go away. And I did discover the computer at about age 12. They weren't as ubiquitous as they are today. And I got interested in pattern recognition, which is that part of artificial intelligence deal with, dealing with recognizing patterns that does uh, incidentally comprise almost all of human intelligence is, is our ability to recognize patterns. I had a little project that could recognize some patterns in musical melodies and then create melodies. If you fed in Mozart, it, would sound like a second-rate student of Mozart's and actually uh, corresponded and then came to visit a professor at MIT, Marvin Minsky, and uh, was actually delighted with how he took uh, every, everyone, whether it's professor or students or high school students, equally seriously. And I knew that because he would be very critical if an idea didn't make sense and would also be delighted, uh, like a child, with an idea that, uh, that might have something new uh, some new revelation about the world. Uh, later on, I had an experience. I was working in uh, optical character recognition. We had a method that could recognize print in any type font. And it was kind of a solution in search of a problem. We didn't really know what this would be good for. And I happened to sit next to this blind gentleman on a plane. And he was explaining how, despite Braille and talking books, the world of printed material was inaccessible. And then that seemed like a really exciting application of that scanning and, and optical character recognition technology. And that's been a theme uh, in the projects that I've chosen to, to work on. Uh, the sort of magic, if you will, of going from dry formulas on a blackboard to actually making changes in people's lives. That's what's exciting for me. Not necessarily abstract science, which has its own value, just the aesthetic value of, of a set of ideas, but actually being able to transform people's lives with ideas. And uh, so I've continued to pursue that through a number of projects and realized that in order to really create technology, you have to be able to anticipate the future. You have to know where technology was going. There's no point solving problems that wouldn't be problems and wouldn't have application by the time the project got finished. And that, and that then grew into a larger passion, which is really anticipating technology as it moves forward, even beyond the scope of what we can do today. So I began to write about the future, and that actually became a means of inventing using materials we don't have today. If I wrote about 20 years from now, I could actually invent with technologies that would exist then. Alan Kay says to anticipate the future, you have to invent it. And by studying technological trends and having an understanding of where technology is likely to be at different points, we can then use our imagination to see what the world would be, would be like in the future. And I guess that's a good segue to what I'd like to share with you. 
which is those of you, particularly those of you around 18 years of age, the vast majority of you will see not only the 21st century, but the 22nd century. I have all of these charts that I've developed showing technological trends. And we've been adding to human longevity at a very sustained rate. It's another one of these exponential trends. In the 18th century, we added a few days every year to human longevity. In the 19th century, it was a couple of weeks. We're now adding about 120 days every year to human longevity. Uh, that's, that exponential is taking off. Within 10 years, we'll be adding more than a year every year to human lifespan. And so if you don't get hit by the proverbial truck, and that's only a problem for the next 20 years because we won't have trucks after that. Uh, you're likely to, to see this century. And this century will be a lot different than a lot of people anticipate. A lot of the comments that I've heard uh, at this conference and others uh, are based on what I would call the intuitive linear view of the future, that in 50 years we'll see 50 years of progress at today's rate. We're used to seeing things at a certain rate. I mean, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and we were debating Bill Joy's article in Wired where he talked about the dangers of technology. And one professor got up and said, well, we won't see self-replicating nanotechnology devices for 100 years. And I said, yes, but we'll see 100 years of progress at today's rate of progress in 25 years. The models I have indicate that we're doubling the paradigm shift rate every 10 years. That means this next 10 years, we'll see 20 years of progress. And the next decade, we'll see 40 years of progress. Exponential growth has a way of being explosive. The 21st century will see 20,000 years of progress at today's rate of progress, not 100 years. And the 20th century was not 100 years, but more like 25 years, because we weren't making today's rate of progress up until recently. So the 21st century, <laughs> the 21st century will be about 1,000 times more profound in terms of, of transformation, transforming our world, really realizing the, the potential of our species, which is unique in the animal kingdom, for creating new worlds through technology and changing our own lives and our own worlds through technology. Uh, as profound as the 20th century was, the 21st century will be uh, a thousand times greater. And we'll be redefining what it means to be human. I see this as the next step in, in evolution. We, might we will touch on this in the next panel on creativity in the arts and sciences, but uh, we will spend a lot of our time in virtual reality, full, full immersion virtual reality involving all of our senses, where we can create new worlds, and that will be a popular art form, creating virtual reality environments, and that'll be the nature of the World Wide Web. 30 years from now, going to a website will mean entering a virtual reality environment, some of which will be very different than environments we could experience otherwise. And we'll be expanding our own human intelligence through intimate contact, intimate connection with with the creations of our mind, with our own intelligent technology, which itself will become increasingly intelligent. And there won't be a clear distinction between human and machine. So I'll just leave those thoughts there, and I'd be happy to take your questions. Hello, my name is Chris Smoke. I'm from North Carolina. Um, you've suggested that there's a are you, you've taken the exponential growth of uh, computing power and shown that for about $1,000 we'll soon be able to do as much processing as an insect's brain and then a, soon a human's brain and then after that all humans' brains. And um, once we reach the level of being able to comp 
being able to compute that much, um, how will we be able to achieve intelligence, or will we be able to? Well, that's a good, that's a good question, because I'm not saying that just because we have computers that are, are as powerful in terms of brute force memory and processing speed as a human brain, that that necessarily gives us a uh, human level of intelligence. You'll be able to compute your spreadsheet in a billionth of a second. But, uh, but there is a scenario that I, that I talk about in, in my book, and which I've thought about for, for several decades. Uh, and basically, it involves reverse engineering the human brain. We have an entity that's of human level of intelligence, and it's not hidden from us. And we've already been able to scan. The brain is not one organ. It's hundreds of different organs, each are specialized information processing regions. They, they operate on different principles. Uh, there are a few that we've been able to, to penetrate, and we've been able to actually understand their algorithms. They're not algorithms in the traditional sense. They're analog. They're digitally controlled analog. They're massively parallel. Uh, they're chaotic processes. They're not logical processes. But we can use these biologically inspired models to create intelligence. Within 30 years, uh, we'll be able to send little nanobots. These are microscopic robots. Miniaturization is another one of these exponential trends. We're currently shrinking technology at a rate of 5.6 per linear dimension per decade. And 30 years, we could send billions of little scanning robots in our brains and scan all the salient neural details and have a complete map of the human brain. That'll be like the raw data, analogous to the raw data in the Genome Project. It'll take us longer to understand it. But as we begin to understand it, we can use biologically inspired models to create similar levels of intelligence. And we'll then be able to combine the kind of chaotic, unpredictable, subtle, rich, deep intelligence that humans have with some advantages of machine intelligence, which is the ability to share knowledge. My knowledge of a subject is represented in a vast pattern of interneuronal connections and neurotransmitter concentrations in my brain. And I can't just take that pattern and download it to your brain. But we won't leave out those quick downloading ports as we build electronic equivalents of our neural thinking processes. Thank you. Mr. Kurzweil, I don't know if you've uh, done a lot, of, a lot of pioneering in the music industry. What do you think uh, music technology, uh, how do you think that's going to change in the next 20, 25, 30 years? Well, music, uh, like all of the arts, but it's, it's particularly obvious in music, has always used the most advanced technologies. In the 19th century, we used the advanced wood making and uh, metal uh, industries of the 19th century. And a piano action is a very complex little mechanical computer. Uh, and currently, we're, we're using uh, synthesizers. Most commercial music is, is done on synthesizers. My father was a composer. He died in 1970. And when he wanted to hear one of his orchestral compositions, he had to hire an orchestra and write out scores by hand and run them off on a mimeograph machine. And now a student in a dorm room can create an orchestra and then modify it as easily as one changes a letter on a word processor. I think what we'll see over the next decade will be systems that can actually help people who have musical judgment and musical understanding but don't have the technical skills to create music so that you can express musical ideas uh, by interacting with machines. And they can do some of the, the more rote levels of creativity, computing a walking baseline, providing appropriate accompaniment. These automatic accompaniment systems, rather than you trying to follow it, will actually try to follow you. We'll see more intelligent computer system instruction that can help us develop musical skills. Uh, we'll develop creative new controllers so that we can express ourselves, uh, even with our thoughts and with our hands and fingers, uh, through other means than just emulating the 19th century controllers where the physics of 
playing sound was inextricably linked to the actual motions involved in creating music. And there'll be increasingly a collaboration between human and machine intelligence in creating music, uh, as we'll see in other areas of human intellectual expression. My name's Ann Russell, I'm from Portland, Oregon. And you talk about this exponential increase in the rate of progress, and I was wondering what you think some of the dangers of that increase might be and how we might be able to prevent it from getting away with us, getting, uh, running away with us, as it were. Uh, good question. Do we have a couple hours to talk about that? Um, technology has always been a double-edged sword. There's been some controversy recently with an article that Bill Joy wrote um, about the dangers of technology. And we don't have to look further than today to see uh, the dangers of technology. And in fact, this century, which has been a bloody one, uh, the destructiveness of warfare has certainly been amplified by, by technology. Technology is power, and knowledge is power, for all of humankind's purposes. And it amplifies our destructive nature as well as our creative potential. Uh, I would say on balance so far anyway that the benefits have outweighed the, the problems. Few people today would really want to go back to the short, brutish, disease-filled, poverty-filled, disaster-prone lives that 99% of the human race suffered through uh, hundreds of years ago. Uh, in the future, we'll have the means to uh, overcome some age-old problems, but also there'll be powerful technologies, and what Bill Joy and others worry about is the sort of democratization of, of mass destruction. That, I mean, take biotech. We're not, I mean, that's on the verge of overcoming major diseases, cancer, and other problems, extending human longevity, all presumably positive things. On the other hand, that means exist in a, or will exist soon in a routine college bioengineering lab to create a pathogen that could be tremendously destructive. Uh, I do take some comfort in in one example, all of these uh, dangers involve self-replication. And we do have a self-replicating entity that didn't exist a few decades ago that is destructive, the computer virus. And when computer viruses first emerged, some observers said, well, this will quickly shut down all computer networks and networks will become useless as, the, as these viruses become more and more sophisticated. So what, what has happened? Uh, computer viruses are destructive. But the destruction is less than 1% of the value we've seen from computer networks. We're not defenseless. We do have an immune system, which is a combination of ethics and technological defense systems and even law enforcement that, that, it, that uh, responds to these, to these dangers. Now, some people would say, but wait a second. Viruses don't have the lethal potential that some of these new dangers of bioengineered pathogens or self-replicating nanotechnology entities will have. That really only strengthens my argument. The fact that the computer viruses are not lethal means that more people are willing to put them out there. And our response to them is more lackadaisical than it would be if, than if they really were uh, lethal. So as we get more and more powerful potential dangers, I think our response will be greater. Uh, but it's going to require constant vigilance. And the real answer is a combination of human ethics of everyone both those creating technology as well as all of society through political and social processes, examining what we're doing with technology and applying it in, in constructive ways. 
uh, and then developing defensive technologies. And we'll have to throw everything we have against these dangers so that we can continue to receive the, the benefits of, of technology while we manage the dangers. But the story of the 21st century hasn't been written yet, so these dangers are real. Thank you. <laughs>